That's over 150 atmospheres of pressure. How many atmospheres can the ship withstand? Well, it's a spaceship, so I'd say anywhere between zero and one. Welcome back to the Tech Weasel Podcast for Friday, June 26, 2020. As always, I'm your host, Paul Huizinga, and before we get started, let me remind you that not only are the audio podcasts available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify, but for most of the episodes, the text vo- uh, version with bonus content is also available at techweasel.com, along with video links and other posts you might find interesting, entertaining, or irritating. This week, we're heading back to an aerospace topic, which is one of my favorite subjects in case that wasn't immediately obvious. Now, back on May 30th, SpaceX made history with the first commercial manned space flight to orbit. They successfully delivered two astronauts to the International Space Station. As of this moment, Doug Hurley and Bob uh, Benkin are embarked on the ISS with their return to Earth planned for some time prior to the end of August. There are a lot of novel things going on with this mission. It's the first American manned space launch since the end of the shuttle program in 2011, and it's the first U.S. capsule launch since Apollo-Soyuz in 1975. Now, while SpaceX has sent 20 or so unmanned cargo resupply missions to the ISS, this mission is the final step in certifying the Crew Dragon system for full operational status. The hope is that once things are up and running, SpaceX will be able to make that round trip for somewhere around $40 million per astronaut, which is about half of what Russia has been charging up till now for rides in Soyuz rockets. One of the things that caught a lot of people's attention is the spiffy new spacesuits the Crew Dragon astronauts wore for the ascent, and presumably will wear again for the descent. They're very different from what we're used to seeing, and they look more like the kind of thing you'd wear on a long-distance motorcycle tour than a space flight, and that's on purpose. Created with the input of Jose Fernandez, a Hollywood costume designer who's worked on wardrobes for the MCU films, among other projects, They've been dubbed Starman suits, and they've been in development since 2015. Now, they look awesome, no doubt, but they probably represent a step backward in safety and utility from the baggy orange advanced crew escape suits Bob and Doug wore on their previous shuttle flights years ago. Of course, I'm not an engineer or even a Hollywood costume designer for that matter, but I can explain why I hold that opinion by looking at the history of spacesuit design. Ideally, you want your spacecraft to provide the people inside with what's called a shirt-sleeve environment, a breathable atmosphere at a reasonable pressure with a comfortable temperature. Believe it or not, commercial airliners are a good example of this kind of life support. At 30,000 feet, the air temperature is typically around minus 48 degrees Fahrenheit, and the pressure is only 4.37 psi compared to 14.7 at sea level. According to the FAA, losing pressurization at a jet's cruising altitude would give an unprotected person a useful period of consciousness of between 15 and 60 seconds. Jets fly at altitudes above 30,000 feet because they're much more efficient at a very high altitude in terms of the amount of fuel required to cover a given distance, and they can take advantage of jet stream tailwinds in excess of 100 miles an hour if they're at the right altitude. But to keep the people inside alive and unfrozen, the cabin is pressurized with what's called bleed air from the engines. A little bit of the flow from the compressor stage of the jet engines is tapped off to maintain the equivalent of about an 8,000 foot altitude inside the cabin. Okay, so why not just maintain sea level pressure? Well, 8,000 feet is about 10.5 to 11 psi instead of 14.7, 
which puts a lot less stress on the structure of the airplane so that it can be built using lighter materials and it won't suffer as much flexing each time it's pressurized and depressurized. The number of pressure cycles is actually one of the limiting factors on how long an airplane lasts. Airliners doing short hops reach the end of their service life much quicker than ones that actually travel more miles but have fewer takeoffs and landings. In the same way, spacecraft have often been designed to operate at lower than sea level pressure to reduce the stress on the pressurized compartments. The original Block 1 Apollo Command Module was designed to have a 5 psi internal pressure while in space with a pure oxygen atmosphere to allow the astronauts to breathe normally. Tragically, during a manned pad test of Apollo 1 on January 27, 1967, a fire fed by the higher than sea level pressure pure oxygen environment killed astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. Now this caused a pretty comprehensive redesign of the capsule. Although the pure oxygen environment hadn't been an issue in previous testing on Mercury and Gemini flights, it was only a matter of time until disaster struck. The solution, among other things such as removing fuel sources from the cabin like the Velcro that covered literally every flat surface for item tethering in zero-g, was to redesign the life support system. At sea level, the cabin was filled with ambient air, and as the rocket ascended, the pressure was bled off and the oxygen and nitrogen mix was slowly replaced with pure oxygen, which wasn't the same huge fire risk at low pressure. To keep the astronauts from experiencing decompression sickness as the pressure dropped, they had to pre-breathe pure oxygen in their spacesuits for several hours before launch to purge all the nitrogen from their blood. That way, once they reached orbit and the capsule was running at 5 psi and on pure oxygen, they wouldn't suffer the bends when they unsealed their helmets. Fortunately for Bob and Doug, they don't have to deal with any of that. The Crew Dragon is designed to match the pressure and atmosphere composition of ISS, and for the long-term health and safety of those on board, it actually runs at a sea level 14.7 psi internal pressure and a normal oxygen and nitrogen mix. If everything could be expected to go perfectly all the time, they could make the trip to and from orbit in jorts and a novelty, I went to the ISS and all I got was a lousy t-shirt, Hanes beefy tea. The Soviets actually tried this, sort of. For the Voskhod 1 mission in October 1964, they pulled all the safety equipment out of a one-man Vostok capsule and turned it into a sort of a clown car that they could stuff three cosmonauts into, but only as long as they were wearing regular cloth flight suits. And they got away with it that time, but when they tried the same thing in 1971 with Soyuz 11, which was a larger capsule but still not capable of holding three people in pressure suits, a depressurization accident on re-entry asphyxiated and killed the crew. Future versions of the Soyuz were redesigned first to hold two occupants, then three, while dressed in so-called pressure suits, which are a lightweight design intended only for emergencies. More on that in a bit. I don't want to bag too hard on Soyuz. It's still the primary way of getting people to and from ISS, and over the many decades it's been in service, they've had something like 140 successful flights, and it's turned out to be statistically the safest manned spacecraft ever built. During the Soviet era, they did tend to play fast and loose sometimes, though, while the U.S. always had their astronauts wear at least some kind of protective gear. The current state-of-the-art for NASA is the aforementioned ACES suit, which is directly descended from the suits worn by Gemini and Apollo astronauts, as well as X-15, SR-71, and U-2 pilots. It looks like what we normally expect a spacesuit to look like. It's very baggy and utilitarian, with a big fishbowl helmet. It was designed to serve the same purpose as the Starman suit for the shuttle program, basically to provide emergency protection in case of a loss of cabin pressure. 
Now, it's worth taking a moment to discuss what kind of hazards humans face in space and what it takes to reduce or eliminate those hazards. The capabilities a spacesuit needs really depend on how it's intended to be used. So let's start at the most difficult case, the EVA suit. EVA stands for extravehicular activity, and this is the kind of suit needed to walk on the moon or do repairs or maintenance on the outside of a space station. Essentially, an EVA suit is a one-person spacecraft. It has to provide protection from a wide variety of things. First of all, it needs an outer layer for ballistic protection against micrometeorites. Now, these range from tiny dust particles to things like flakes of paint from old boosters that are still in orbit. While they're light and small, they can be traveling at really absurd relative speeds, so you want something to protect the inner layers of the suit from being abraded or punctured by them. There's also the thermal control to consider. In direct sunlight, spacewalking astronauts experience temperatures in excess of 250 degrees Fahrenheit, while in shade the temperature drops to minus 150. Since radiation, in the form of heat, not the bad ionizing kind, is the only method for heat to be transmitted in a vacuum, the obvious solution is a good reflective insulation to keep out the temperature extremes. That just leaves the body heat of the astronaut to be dealt with, and that turns out to be a surprisingly big deal. Typically, astronauts will wear an undergarment with tubes built into it to circulate water as coolant. For tethered spacewalks, that cooling water can come and go through the same umbilical it supplies air, but for the Apollo moon suits, a very, a very clever self-regulating system was designed. A plate was exposed to vacuum that had tiny, precisely uh, drilled holes in it, and as water from the cooling suit escaped, it froze on the outside of that plate, carrying away heat. As the coolant temperature rose, the little orifice is defrosted, more water left, and the process repeated continually. And by varying the size of the little holes, the suit could be kept at whatever temperature was desired, automatically, basically, until the supply of coolant ran out. Finally, there's breathable air and pressure. In order to make a suit that is reasonably light and compact, the inside pressure is going to be lower than sea level, and the atmosphere is going to be pure oxygen to keep the partial pressure high enough to allow normal activity for the astronaut. The EVA suits used on shuttle missions and the ISS run at 4.3 psi, and to prevent decompression sickness, astronauts pre-breathe pure oxygen for four hours to purge nitrogen from their blood before going outside to get the mail. Besides reducing stress on the pressure-containing part of the suit, one of the reasons for the low internal pressure is to make it possible to flex the joints in the suit. If you've ever seen a video of an inflatable raft or an airliner escape slide being activated, you can see how as the pressure builds, all the tubes that it's made up of want to unfold and become rigid. The same thing happens with the spacesuit, which is really just five tubes connected together. Through clever design, it's possible to make shoulder, knee, and elbow joints that more or less keep the same internal volume as you move your arms and legs, but the more pressure inside the suit, the more it's going to fight you as you try and bend the joints. The lower air pressure helps reduce this, but it doesn't completely eliminate it, and doing EVA work can be extremely fatiguing as a result of having to constantly apply force to bend the suit. On the very first spacewalk during the Voskhod 2 mission in 1965, this effect caused serious problems for cosmonaut Alexei Leonov. And he spent a little over 12 minutes outside the spacecraft, but his suit ballooned so much that he couldn't reach the, the uh, shutter release on the camera mounted on his chest. When he tried to rejoin his fellow cosmonaut Pavel uh, Belyayev inside, more problems almost cost him his life. Since equipment inside the capsule needed airflow for cooling, the entire spacecraft couldn't be depressurized and a temporary external fabric airlock had to be used. 
When Leonov tried to return, it was so difficult to move that he ended up getting stuck sideways in the airlock, and he had no choice but to manually reduce the pressure in his suit to dangerously low levels just to squirm inside. He ended up spending an additional 12 minutes in vacuum, basically fighting for his life, and his core body temperature climbed to 101.8 degrees because of the exertion. Subsequent Soviet and U.S. EVA suits have taken this effect into account, which is why they look the way they do. The physics of making a soft fabric joint that can bend under pressure with minimal resistance dictate the form of the spacesuit. For a pressure suit that's only intended for use inside a spacecraft where full mobility isn't necessary, or for emergencies only, a lot of the features of an EVA suit can be eliminated or simplified. For example, you don't need an outer layer for protection against micrometeorites, though you probably do want something that's resistant to abrasion to protect the inner pressure containing part from wear and tear. Cooling can come from an external umbilical connection, and even if your normal shirt sleeve environment inside the spacecraft is at sea level pressure, running a reduced suit pressure is an acceptable trade-off if you know that the astronaut will only have to endure it for a short period of time. Now mobility is another question though, and here's where the Starman suit really departs from the other current rescue or ascent and descent suits like ACES or SOCOL. Since ACES is a direct development from earlier designs from Gemini and Apollo, it's not surprising that there's a lot of, if it's not broke, don't fix it engineering involved. It's designed to provide enough mobility to allow an astronaut to reach and operate controls in a vacuum, and it has one very obvious design feature that every U.S. spacesuit has had since day one. It's easy to see that all NASA suits dating back to Mercury have an adjustable strap that connects the groin area to a pulley, and that pulley has kind of a wire loop that attaches it to the neck ring of the helmet connection. That piece of hardware is there for a specific reason. Pulling on the end of the strap tightens it and makes the spacesuit bend at the waist without the astronaut inside having to do a continual crunch to remain in a seated position. Even when you're completely belted in to the seat, 4.5 PSI applied over the entire area of your torso is going to put tremendous force on your body trying to straighten it out, and that strap prevents that. Now you'll notice that the Starman suit lacks that element, as well as any obvious design features to provide mobility at the shoulders or elbows. For an emergency survival suit for the Crew Dragon, this is probably not an issue. The spacecraft is capable of completely automated operation. In fact, that's its primary operating mode. So if the self-loading cargo in the seats can't move in an emergency that depressurizes the capsule on launch or re-entry, it won't cause a loss of control of the capsule. Based on a comparison of SpaceX's suits to the ACES suit, it's very likely that in the event of a loss of pressure, the astronauts would immediately and involuntarily assume a position that was more starfish than Starman, much like Ralvie's little brother in his snowsuit in A Christmas Story. While this could be an issue if the pressurization failure happened during ascent, because it would be impossible to transfer the crew to the ISS without depressurizing their suit so they could move, let alone make it through the airlock hatch, the contingency for that kind of problem is almost certainly an immediate re-entry of the Crew Dragon rather than an attempt to dock with the space station in orbit. So that's my two cents. Like I said, I'm no engineer, but I think I'm on safe ground saying that while a Starman pressure suit looks pretty cool and futuristic, it's going to be confined to emergency-only use like the Russian SoCal suit. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join me again next time for more nonsense. Until then, visit techweasel.com, tell your friends, and have a good week.
Now I need you to stay right there.